This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello, welcome to Analyzing Anfield. Moke, how are you, mate? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? This is the most important <laughs> thing. Like, obviously, you weren't very well last week. I'm glad you're looking good, at least. I mean... I'll take that, yeah. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, last week, uh, we did plan to podcast. Uh, there was no, you know, no, no, no issues there, but I was just unwell. And to be honest, every single year around this time, you know, when the seasons are changing, mm. I have that issue, you know, every single year, mate, the same time, I get a little bit of sickness. Sometimes it's worse than other times. This time was a bit of a freak one, to be honest. But yeah, we couldn't podcast, we couldn't preview the derby, sadly. But this week, at least we can talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about some overriding themes around that as well. Um, what did you make of the game? Um, it was a lot of what I was expecting, to be honest. I think before the game, uh, I said that I thought it would be 2-0, but I thought we'd score one goal in each half. And that was nearly how it happened. I thought it would be a game that Everton set out to make it tough for us. And you'd have to be patient. And that happened. Um, Every, outside of that, it's kind of just a typical derby. It was a little bit strange. I thought it was a bit less typical. I thought it was a bit like beige. Well, I was going to say, it was a bit of a strange yeah. because of the whole tw- early 12.30 thing. I do think it kind of made an effect. And then once the red card happens, it becomes a very linear game in as much as this team are doing this and only this and this team are doing this and only this. And it's a case of who's going to win. So from that perspective, it did kind of lessen maybe some of the intensity of the tackling maybe later on as you'd get normally in a derby. But look, essentially what normally happens in an Anfield derby is that Liverpool don't necessarily play as great as they have played against other teams and they still end up winning and probably don't concede a goal. Yeah, well, there's, there's been this kind of talking point. I mentioned this on the uh, the Anfield Rapper earlier in the week that Klopp has specifically tried to almost reduce the intensity of the derbies mm. with a view to kind of avoiding any potential injuries, just knowing like how intense them derbies can be, and you know maybe maybe being a bit scarred in the past from the likes of Van Dijk getting injured, Erig uh, got injured in one, Thiago got yeah. injured in one, so. I think those those elements of horns and clock maybe, and to, to an extent where now the Anfield derby is a bit more of like a there's a, an added emphasis more than ever of of just turning it into a football game. Yes. Without any like additional, almost keeping the crowd quiet in a way. Mm. Well, I mean, I think alongside all of those injuries you mentioned, particularly those, I think, well, no, obviously, Origi happened at Anfield, the others happened at Goodison. But alongside that, it's, I mean, Liverpool not winning the game, if you think about it. If you think over the course of Klopp's tenure, most of those games happen at Goodison, where there's been a draw, but it happened last season, another 12-30, a nil-nil game. And this is, again, you look at the quality of the Everton team, Liverpool should be beating them. And Klopp is aware of the fact that the leveller in this is the rivalry. So by him minimising that element of it, it's like, no, this isn't your big rivals and the game you want to lose the least out of all the games. This is a team that are 16th in the table that have been in relegation battles for the last two or three years and treat them like that. And you can see how and why that would work. Uh, obviously, to a certain extent, it's fine losing battle because the derby is always going to be a derby. But you can see why he's trying to, to accentuate the angle of it, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting game to go into. One of the frustrating elements about not uh, recording last week, one of my takes was going to be, <laughs> One of my Adelaide and Anfield takes was going to be 
Um, Everton are actually better than they look in the in the in the table um, in terms of their underlying numbers. I, I know I know what I said earlier in the season, but I, I would be surprised looking at what they've done so far if they go down personally. Mm. Um, specifically in attack, the 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 better than you would think in terms of like creating shots at least. They're not so good when it comes to finishing them, yeah. but I thought it would be. Not an even game or anything like that, but I, I, I fairly. I don't think it would. I didn't think it would be a, a truly dominant sign against a really, really inferior team for for ninety minutes. I thought they would kind of have a go, but we didn't really get a chance to see that because actually Young got sent off so early, changed the game. Hmm. Uh, was it a red? Yeah, I mean, I think the two. If you look at the two incidents separately, the first one he's clearly. Um, denying a counter-attack. I'm not sure Newcastle fans will be pointing to the similarities between that and the one that Trent didn't get, but we'll move on from that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you've seen them given. Obviously, it feels quite early to have a yellow card, but some referees want to set their stall out. They want to try and eliminate all that kind of business early on. So you've seen it more often these days. The second one, the fact that he's making that tackle to try and avoid Diaz getting into the box where he can't make that tackle... I feel that means that he's got a slightly more cynical element to it. So, yeah, I don't think he can complain. What I would say, though, is that from going off from what you were saying before about Everton looking better than we think they have, or what the table says they have, they would have come with a game plan, and you can start to see that. I mean, there were elements where they did try to trap us and regain and, and spring on us in midfield. Obviously, their best chance was still that one that they created in the first minute. Yeah. But there was a plan there, and the irony was, up until that point of the red card, Liverpool's best attacking had come from when Everton attacked. Yeah, so yeah. every time Everton got a few corners, they got us a bit of space to run into. Suddenly, we looked a lot more threatening. So when Klopp goes on to say that he kind of wishes that they hadn't had a red card against them, and it was still 11 against 11, I kind of feel like that's what he means, because yeah. Everton attacking basically gave us more attacking impetus more space as I mentioned to run into yeah well he did say that after the game he said after the game um, Everton don't really have the deepest of blocks I think he said mm. um, which is what they are associated with and what you would associate Dice with maybe but they're really not they're, they're, they're kind of having a go this season basically and um, that allows Liverpool to, to use that space going forward mm. particularly in behind and things like that um, but it's a shame we didn't really overly get to see that. I do. I agree with you. I think Young should have got sent off. Um, he did get sent off. After that, um, I feel like the match kind of followed the theme of the referees decided this game. The, the referees decided the results because he, he proceeded to give us a penalty eventually, and he, he opted against sending Canate off. So, in that sense, the referees had a massive impact on the game, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I think the the tactical elements of the game, as a result of that, have been overlooked a little bit. Because yes. Klopp, Klopp's changes had a real impact. Um, obviously, Everton went down to ten men about the thirty-fifth minute or something like that. Um, Dyche decided to wait until half time, hang on for ten minutes, and then at half time he then shuffled his pack and he came out with a, a five-three-one yeah. shape. Um, took off his two wingers, which was interesting, McNeil and Harrison. And he brought on Michael Keane, God knows why, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nathan Patterson, and set up with a back five. And, I th and Klopp kind of looked at that for 15 minutes, weighed it up, and then made his changes, and, and they were really, really effective as well. They were effective, and it's weird because 
you think about sort of the games we've had so far this season where we've gone against 10 men, and obviously, with one large exception, the games have gone positively for us, so you kind of really don't think about what you learn from them. But when you are playing with 10 men, what you do learn is how to defend against it because you are putting yourself in that position, so you know all the things. He, Klopp knew all the things Sean Dyche was going to try and do. And I mean, if you think about the Spurs game in particular, the 5-3-1, particularly the way Everton played it, was very similar to the 5-3 that we played down to nine, against nine men yeah, against Spurs. Yeah, I thought that, yeah. And you take Dominic Calvert-Lewin out of it because that system kind of did take him out of it because they didn't, couldn't get him anywhere near the ball. He couldn't press any of our defenders because he was running around on his own. So it was very similar. So... Klopp knew the best, the weak points of that because he knows he's tried to put it in place himself. So the fact that it was the wide men that Everton sacrificed allowed him to be a little bit more daring and when he's bringing on forwards to have Luis Diaz attacking from essentially left back because yeah. it's not like he's going to have a right winger running at him. He's just going to be able to be Luis Diaz. And lo and behold, Luis Diaz in advanced positions is what helped Wilkes get the breakthrough. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Whether it's the legendary lionesses, grassroots, or expert analysis of the women's leagues, Women's Football News has it all covered. A brand new monthly magazine packed with news, interviews, and expert opinion. Don't miss Women's Football News. Pick up a copy today from participating retailers. Women's Football is here to stay, and so are we. Yeah, well, when you look at these kind of um, these ten-man situations, the, the way in which that team ends up defending, it's always really central. Yes. It's always really narrow, uh, compact. They don't kind of adventure beyond their own defensive side for the most part. Um, so you can't really threaten them behind. So if you've got a narrow block in front of you, and there's no depth behind that block or anything like that, the only way in which you can create space is by going wide with width, and that was why. Klopp's changes made a fair bit of sense because he obviously didn't have Robertson, but rather than taking off a forward for a forward, he took off Simakas for Nunes, put Nunes up front and moved Lewis Diaz back to, to play as a left-back. And um, he kind of tampered with his his new-look system as well in terms of like the inverted full-back thing and all that yes. that we've been doing. Because Trent suddenly started playing like old Trent. Um, Diaz played like old Robertson. And you've got a really, really wide... 4-3-3 um, with kind of a midfield three in the middle that is predominantly remaining behind the ball like Henderson, Fabinho and Wijnaldum did mm -hmm. but this, but the players doing it are really, really creative Yes, and can, can pick up these pockets and things like that like Elliot, Sobuslein, McAllister so it was kind of, it ended up kind of like being like a, a bit of a hybrid of Liverpool's original system under Klopp very wide high-flying fullbacks mm -hmm. and what is Klopp's work in progress system at the minute, which consists of basically um, kind of creative number 10 type, number 8, if you know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, that kind of allows you to do both, because essentially, if you've got um, the fullbacks high and wide, they are having to draw attention. Obviously, with Luis Diaz, he's, um, he had, um, I think it was Nathan Patterson out there who was defending against him. He had him on toast quite a few times. So then you've got to commit another man to come over, which is what Michael Keane did. Unfortunately, he stuck his arm out. <laughs> um, so then you're creating space inside by having these two men go over to track the dangerous uh, Diaz or the dangerous Trent Alexander-Arnold. 
but you still got your Sobazai and your Elliot inside. So when that space does appear, they can still play the intricate passes. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating about this period is that Mo Salah, rather than in this situation, because he was playing slightly inside, rather than trying to kind of make runs in behind and spin the, the defenders because there wasn't as much space in behind, he was basically posting up. He was basically backing into defenders into the penalty area and looking to play one-twos with guys around him. And it's like, I've never seen him do that before. Yeah. But again, it goes to show that maybe Klopp has identified that in previous times when we've played against 10 men, we've become a bit too predictable. Yeah. And we haven't been able to make um, the, the, our advantage count. And I think there are, the stats are out there. I'm pretty sure in the 21-22 season, we played against 10 men six times in one season. Uh, scored three goals, two of which were penalties. <laughs> so it's like, clearly there's an issue there yeah. around how we attack a team. Because essentially, if you look back at all those teams, it was, I think, Atletico Madrid twice, Arsenal one time, uh, Leeds United, a couple of other teams. They all defended against us the same way. They all did the low block thing. Mm. And we couldn't beat it. And I don't know, Chelsea was the other one that got to see the Reese James game where he got the handball on, on the line. Yeah. So Klopp's obviously said, okay, this can't continue. We need to find new ways. And the fact that I think that we've now got players, like you say, like Sobozai, who can be dangerous from inside, but we've also got guys there who can go outside and double, it allows you to kind of try different things without necessarily having to leave yourself open. Because we still had the two centre-backs basically patrolling the halfway line. Still had McAllister roughly in the space in front of them. So if Everton won the ball and tried to leak out, there is a, a presence in the centre. But at the same time, it means that you can have the majority of the play really high up. So you can be have all of your players in the final third, which means that it's a lot harder for them to cover every single person. Yeah, I mean, I've got a, a kind of a screen grab of this that I'll send to production for the people who are watching on YouTube. Um, but it, it did. It, I mean, that does kind of look very 2018-19 Liverpool, doesn't it? You would think that three was the workhorse midfield. You yeah. would think that was Trent, that was Robertson, and then you've got Mane, Salah, and Firmino in the middle there. So that was kind of how it worked out. But um, as you say, that was that was kind of the approach in terms of the shape. But sometimes Trent would swap places with Elliot. Yeah. Um, sometimes Sobosley would be the widest player, and Diaz would be inside. But what you've got there, basically, apart from maybe the two centre-halves, everybody else is a threat on the ball. Mm -hmm. Everybody else can break you down. Um, and that's kind of what you need when it comes to breaking down a, a, a ten-man block, basically. Um, I, I think despite that, we still weren't at our fluid best. Yeah. And I think we were somewhat fortunate to eventually get the win, because there was a point where I was thinking, like, I'm not sure we're going to break through here. But... The, the the kind of the penalty does come from Diaz on yeah. that side, picking up the ball in space, driving on his man, putting across, and it gets handballed. So, in, in in that extent, you could say Klopp's kind of tactical shift. I mean, if that if he doesn't make that shift, do Liverpool win that penalty? Do Liverpool win the game? You know, mm -hmm. it's open for debate, really. Well, I mean, if he if he doesn't make that shift, is Diaz still on the pitch, or is he the guy who's come off for Darwin Nunes, for example? So. Yeah. It is a difficult one because, unlike you, I do think that at the point Liverpool got the penalty, they needed something else to give them that extra breakthrough. But you're right, the process that Klopp put in place was the reason they got that penalty. 
Like, it didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't just, oh, we were lucky that he put his arm out. He put his arm out because he was under pressure, because he was having to close on a, a defend, on an attacker who's very good and who he probably didn't think the guy in front of him was going to be able to defend. So he's having to make decisions he doesn't want to make. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was an interesting one. I think if, if we're looking at individual performances, I think... I think specifically Gravenberg had a really good start, at least in terms of his first 45 minutes or mm -hmm. so. I think he started the brightest. Um, I'm not sure we've spoken about him too much yet. Um, what have you made of him so far and what did you make of him in the derby? I thought he was fantastic in the derby, particularly in that, like I say, in that first half, because he was someone who clearly knew what the game was going to bring. He was ready to be physical and to match them, but also he had a clear vision of what he was wanting to do when he was on the ball. And that always got, gives a bit more calm to everyone around him. And that's something that you need as a midfield player. You need someone who looks like they've got more time than they really do. Mm. And that doesn't mean to say he's someone who's dawdling on the ball and going to get caught. It just means that he's a few steps ahead. And I like that. And in the second half, I feel like it was a, probably a different... Um, different things being asked of him that maybe weren't quite as natural to him and obviously with different people in different areas, different spaces are going to open up. But in general, I feel like he's, when I watch him, he feels like a player who's being allowed to express himself. Yeah. He doesn't feel like a player who's been overburdened with what he must remember about his role at every point. And that's a great sign for me because it means that that's the one thing he wasn't getting previously in his career at Bayern Munich in particular. So if you think about the way that he's taken to that, that role, it will hopefully mean that he'll be able to grow once he does get a bigger tactical understanding. Yeah, I think one of the things that shined for me was his, his obvious ability to receive the ball under pressure and keep moving as he's receiving the ball, a bit like Alana used to. Yes. Um, on the half turn and he, he just kind of, a bit like Thiago as well. I think Thiago's another one who can do that. It doesn't have to stop to control the ball. Just controls as he's in full flow. And once he's carrying the ball, he's difficult to stop. I think he's got a knife for a pass as well. But I think one interesting thing we could touch on with this is like, do you think so far he looks more like a six based on what you've seen, or less like a six? Because uh, this was the narrative. When yeah, we, when we no, it was. Him. And I remember I said it myself that that, that he was eventually going to become a six. Honestly. As I say, we're in the phase of the moment where he's given a bit more freedom to express himself, which normally means progressing the ball forwards. So from what we've seen so far, it doesn't look like he's being bred for a six role. Mm. But first of all, I still think it's early. Second of all, I'm still not 100% sure what our six is going to look like. Yeah. Particularly if you think about the likes of Andre, who we are still being regularly linked with, who's going to be in and around that area if he comes to Liverpool. So you think about him and you think about his skill set, you think about the way that we are replacing Fabinho in terms of by committee to a certain extent. So yeah. rather than necessarily having a guy like McAllister who's responsible for all of the tackling, what we've now got is Virgil van Dijk who's willing to push up into that area more often to do some of that tackling because he knows he's going to have McAllister and Trent in around the central areas to pick up second balls. So all of these things come into play when we think about what the guy coming in in that position is going to be because it's not necessarily going to be all of the things that was the last guy was responsible for, this guy's going to be responsible for. 
Yeah, I, I don't think we will move towards a six who is exclusively a destroyer. No. I don't I don't I think we will want someone who's really technical in there and will offer us a degree of control on the ball. I think that's kind of what we're moving towards. And that's why Andre makes a lot of sense because he's he's an absolute pass master for Fluminense. Um but Gravenberg, I, I think obviously he was earmarked for a little bit and I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that he's like I don't know, six foot nine or something. Mm. <laughs> um, but the way in which he plays, I think personally he's, he's too expressive and too almost athletic, and he, he wants to be a vertical runner, yeah. you know, straight lines, box to box. And I think you would kill that if you tried to play him as a six where he's holding the fort. And that's why I like McAllister there, because even if McAllister was played as an eight, McAllister's never going to be. That box to box kid, no. he, he's a holding, he's, he pretty much holds his position. McAllister, he doesn't do that, he lets the ball do the run for him and things yeah. like that. So, uh, but it's, it's an interesting one to keep an eye on. You are right that it's early, like it is. And I think, again, with Ryan uh, as potential playing as a six, I think it makes more sense as a double pivot. And I think you can obviously yeah. have two, there's two main kinds of double pivots. There's the one with Liverpool used to have, and I always think back to. Alonso and Mascherano, I think that's the best Liverpool have ever had it in that in terms of the combination. But you've both got them sitting deep. One of them is to destroy, one of them is to distribute, if you want to do it from a really um, simple standpoint. But then you've got what I like to call the windscreen wiper version, which is what Caicedo and McAllister do. We've got the one guy there distributing, and the guy in front of him basically screening everybody and making sure that the stuff that gets to the guy at the back isn't quite as much to deal with. Yeah, That's the role I think you could do with Gravenberg so if you had Macalester there I think Gravenberg could do the kind of windscreen wiping job against certain opponents I wouldn't say it was something you'd say that they're going to play 30 games together doing it I do still think that there are certain opponents in which it will definitely work well Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel Yeah I, th- I think we will see him there and I think um He'll he'll play there a bit for me, like when Alden played there every now and then, Milner played there every now and then, um, and I think he'll do it to a decent level when he does as well, because he's you know he, he does have that physical um, things of his game and he's he, he's technical as well. He's he's got a good tactical understanding and stuff, given his uh, his education at Ajax. But I just think looking at him so far, I think it'd be a shame yeah. if you were to put a leash on him and exactly. say, listen, stay, because he's he's quite clearly a really athletic player who can carry the ball and get away from players, I think he's right up there already, I think, for players who've been fouled for Liverpool. Yeah. He's winning a lot of fouls already, that's because players can't get near him, really. Um, another player who played well, uh, Van Dijk, Virgil Van Dijk, looking, is back to his best a bit of a stretch? or is um, it fair? It's funny, because I think it's something that we all kind of want to see, and yeah. I mentioned it yeah. myself, it's almost like, it's, there's a certain calmness about having Virgil back that I think all of us want because we've talked about elements of control over the last few years and how we lost it and him coming back feels like one of those. I think it's a different kind of Virgil we're seeing still. I still think that he's got different role, different parts of his game but I do think in terms of him being able to control an attack in front of him I do feel like we're getting closer to what we used to see. But he's 
not being asked to do the things that 1819 Virgil was doing. He's like, I've been asked to do slightly different things. And I think it's interesting how many of those things are helping the new version of what he is as a player compared to what he was. Because he has had a big injury. He is on the other side of 30. So there are some kind of realistic things we have to kind of take into account when we're assessing him. But he can still be, in his way, as dominant a force as he was previously. What I find interesting about this, and I think we mentioned this genuinely about a year ago, around the time we played Napoli in the Champions League and we got hammered. I think it was 4-1, was it? Yep. Well, at the time, Van Dijk looked all over the place. Joe Gomez had an absolute nightmare. Massa was struggling. And all our centre-backs basically collectively fell off a cliff, essentially. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a midfield in front of them. And is it a surprise that now we're talking about Virgil being back to his best? Joe Gomez is improving and getting there. Massa looks absolutely fine. And it's because we now have a midfield department, we have an engine room in front of them. It's not just because of that, but every department influences every department yes. on a pitch. It's a team. I was going to say, it's almost like it's a team yeah. and everybody's <laughs> interconnected. And it's funny because obviously you can say that last season and there were people saying that. In fact, Jürgen was saying that, I'm pretty sure. Virgil was probably saying that himself privately. But until you see it in action, mm. you can't really confirm it. And then yet, yeah, here we are, we've got it in action. I do think that it's one of those situations where he probably wasn't at his best and the game, the team was exacerbating those things. So he's, he's definitely playing better, but it's easier for him to play better because he's not having to do as much or not having to worry about as much. I think with central defenders in particular, there was always an element of the eye test, I think, that has to have some sway because... Most of the sway, to be honest. Well, yeah, because with numbers, it's funny because you look at the numbers for what what defensive actions or those kind of things, and it's not the same as for attacker. So with an attacker, if they've got lots of offensive production, they're obviously a good player. With a defender, it's like, well, yeah. it means they're having to do a lot of defending. So yeah, does that yeah. mean that they're playing in a bad team? Or does that mean that this guy is doing the defending of three people? Yeah. Like, in an ideal world, you want your defender to have to make zero tackles. But then a bad defender could also be making zero tackles. So, like you say, the eye test is important. And what I've seen from him this season, last season there were times where it felt like he was scared to do things. Like, he was diving his tackles because he was scared to run back 10 yards. Or he was not trusting uh, Simicast or whoever's outside him to cover. So he was diving in and making rash decisions. He's not doing that as much now. He is able to do the little 10-yard sprints, even if they're not quite as superb or not quite as sharp as they were. He's not scared to do them, which to me is massive because it means that he does feel like he trusts himself and his body and he trusts the team and the system to be able to allow him to take risks where risks need to be taken. And I think that's what's going to allow us to bring that aura back, even if he's not doing all of the old Virgil things. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, you, you mentioned the numbers there. You, you really can't use numbers to uh, to assess the defensive performance, at least not in, in, at this level anyway, you know, public space stuff. Um, because as you say, when it comes to an attacker, general rule is just the more the better in terms of, you know, how much he's doing across the board and stuff like that. Defenders, um, if they're getting kind of judged and, and counted in terms of their 
their actions, their events, what they're doing. The best version of Virgil van Dijk was was just didn't have to do anything. Yeah. He just kind of I don't know what he was doing. He was just <laughs> just relaxing, wasn't he? He was just, he was uh, just whispering into the ears of the attackers, <laughs> just saying, "Nah, you don't want to bring that run down." Yeah, I'll get yeah. There. <laughs> just kind of breathing on his opposition players and uh, yeah, using this kind of aura. To, it was you know. Have you seen um, <laughs> Have you seen the Dark Knight Rises? Yes. Seen when he just puts his uh, his kind of his palm on his on his shoulder and says, "Do you feel in charge?" It's a little bit like that, a little bit kind of like Bane vibe there, but in terms of like um, judging a, a defensive player using numbers, we're, st- we're still miles away from that really, and that's something that we're working mm. on in terms of like Opter and, and Statsbomb and all these companies trying to find a way out to do that, but we're still not there in terms of using numbers to judge and to prove yeah. this is why Van Dijk is so good, this is why, you know, I don't know. Nestor is so good, Maldini, whoever you want. If you think about last season, though, and the times when these questions were being raised, what we were seeing was we were seeing compilation clips on YouTube of players bamboozling him, maybe look, making him look stupid by fainting, and he'd go for the faint and, you know, stagger a couple of steps. Things that we never see from Virgil before. Mm. Or mistakes where he's made a clearance, he's gone to the wrong person. Essentially, bad things that he's done which lead to shots slash goals. These are the things that people are getting at. People say, look, He's not himself anymore. He's being beaten by that guy and that guy and whatever. We haven't seen that this season. Yeah. So, from just a macro level, that's an improvement. Like that's clearly an improvement. As much as that, he feels well. He's not being embarrassed in the same ways that he was able to be last season. Yeah. And we talk about the aura stuff, and we are joking to a certain extent. But I still think back to that time when he was at his best. And go back and listen to all the strikers and what they said about him then and what they're saying about him now. And even the guys who were defending him, even when he was at his worst, and people were saying, oh, he's a finish, he's not a good... Are those people, the people who he was having to regularly play against, his peers. So I do think that aura thing is important. I do think that you, even if it's just a couple of percent points, if you can get into a player, uh, an attacker thinking, oh, God, not playing against him again. Yeah. then they are going to make different decisions. We, we speak about it with Alisson. When a goalkeeper's so good, it means that strikers feel like they've got to put it in the toppest of cup corners. So it affects how they attack. I do think you get that with Virgil at his peak. And like I say, he might not necessarily be the Virgil of old, but we can create a system where he looks like the Virgil of old and therefore can still have that effect on opponents. Yeah, no, he, he looks good so far. I think if I was to be like also critical I think maybe the only element of his game that I'm not sure is where it once was I'm not sure it will it will be simply because it's of his age you know it's completely normal is I think his acceleration off the mark is maybe not what it once was in terms of like reaching his top speed quickly you know yes. I think maybe now when there's a ball threaded in behind there's a bit just just a bit more of a slight doubt in my head as to whether he's going to just sweep it up and take care of it whereas a few years back that was just dead easy for him yeah but it's you're talking marginal stuff and you're talking stuff that is normal because he's now 32 and also those things can be mitigated so for example if we've got Canate alongside him for the mo- unless they're uh, a team was particularly trying to target Virgil van Dijk which I still think is a bit of a stretch <laughs> yeah <laughs> Maybe maybe Simicast. Well, yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, maybe Simicast. But even if it is Simicast, 
then you've still got Alisson behind, yeah. who is great at being sweeper-keeper. And so you can kind of minimise the amount of pit, the, the territorial places that they can damage you through these things. So, like, again, it's like something that I say almost every week, complimentary football. Guys whose strengths accentuate other guys' strength and mitigate some of their weaknesses. You have a guy, Alisson, who's so good at commanding, like, 40 yards from his own goal, that that means that if you've got a, a team who are looking to plan and play balls over the top in behind Virgil, then he's going to be up there. And so, again, it, it means that they've got to get it absolutely spot on to get any kind of chance out of it. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we kind of wrap up like the, the kind of derby talk... Um, this might be a bit of a curveball topic for the mm. listeners. I'm not sure what you thought when you seen it on the agenda. But <laughs> Jared Brantwaite, I think he's a player, mate. I think he's a really good player and he's left-footed. Um, he's at a club that is struggling financially in, mm. in many ways. And uh, I think there's like this kind of like ongoing hearings regarding like FFP performance and stuff like that. He's homegrown, he's 21, he's about 6'4". <laughs> You see what I'm getting at here? I see where you're going with this. Um, and I agree with you. I think there's talent there. And again, going back to what we were saying about central defenders, the eye test is massive. And not only does he look like a guy who can handle playing in a team that's going to be doing a lot of defending, he looks like he's got a quality to be able to handle a team who isn't. Yeah. So he looks like he can play at a high level. He's very good on the ball. He looks like he's got good instincts in terms of positioning and where he needs to be. So I think he's going to turn into a really good player. Do I think that Everton will sell him to Liverpool? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I'm the same, to be fair. I, I think it's an absolute non-starter, to be honest, especially considering he's got another four years on his contract. And you'd like to think as well, even if like even if they had to sell him, surely Liverpool wouldn't be the only club in for him. You no. know what I mean? There'd probably be somebody else in for him and they'd just force a sale through there. But... I will say this, though. As someone pointed out on Twitter, I forget who it was, that the way that Klopp described him as a left-sided centre-back. Yeah, he did. That's, that's one of the reasons I'm bringing this up, yeah. Because it's like, OK, so you notice that part of it. And it's almost like we've been looking for one of those. Yeah. So you can almost very much believe that he is on a list somewhere. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if he's on the list. If you look at his profile, remove the fact he plays for Everton, he's a really interesting player. Yeah. And he's one who absolutely fits the bill, really, of what we're after in terms of Squad void and things like that, you know, Massa could be leaving, probably is leaving in um, about eight months or something like mm. that. Um, Liverpool don't have a left footed centre back. We need homegrown players a little bit now. Um, you know, he's a good age, good height for the Liverpool centre half. Yeah. He takes every box, really. Yeah. He can play on the ball as well. I've seen some people say as well that obviously the emergence of Jarrell Quanson means that why would we go out and buy another young? It's like, well, no, you need, you could have both. Yeah, plus Quanza's right footed. Well, exactly, to so start with. You know. But also, I think when you've got younger players, having a few of them is <laughs> probably better than having one because it means that when you're going through growing pains or struggles, young players do, you're not forced to kind of keep going. You can kind of, you know, bring someone else in. And so, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as a reason not to get him. Um, yeah, I still think it would be rather interesting to see what the conversations would be. Because, I mean, you know, Everton... Who was, who was the last player to, to move, do you think? Was It was either Abel Xavier or Nick Barnby. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. It was one of those two. And they were, they both happened 
pretty soon around, like pretty close to each other. And like, I remember Barnby scored in his first derby, and um, yeah, that upset some people. <laughs> so maybe may, I don't know. They, they they have long memories over there. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it's it seems impossible. Like it, it can't happen really, kind of. But I, I'm just talking more from the perspective of if they're in a position where they have no choice, hmm. which is not out of the realms of possibility based on things that were here and things like that. Well, who knows, they might sell into a Bournemouth and then Bournemouth get relegated. Yeah. Suddenly, <laughs> it's on the market. Yeah, it's, it's one to keep an eye on, but um, if you move away from the derby, then and kind of, I think this is an opportunity to move to what, to kind of roll back the clock, mm-hmm. um, look back a few years, because this week Liverpool faced Toulouse in the Europa League. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, the current chairman, of Toulouse is Damien Camoli, um, who was once in charge of Liverpool's business, uh, Liverpool's first sporting director, the first appointment under FSG, mm-hmm. really, uh, recommended by Billy Bean, no, yeah. nobody else. But um, what do you remember of him? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> I, again... Fond my... memories or mm. mixed? Mixed. Yeah. I have to say it's mixed. I. I remember him being at Spurs, obviously, before us, and Mm. my dad being a Spurs fan and being not too impressed with a lot of the players who were coming into the club at the time. So I was a little bit, I think it's fair to say, apprehensive, but the the kind of plan that they were working around, i.e. the the marginal gains... um, I don't want to go say Moneyball because it feels like it's a bit too simple. He, he was massively inspired by Moneyball, though. But, Camoli, like, yeah, no, he he's was. He's got posters of Billy B in his room <laughs> and everything, honestly. But the way the way he would tell it would to say that there was more to it than that. Yeah. Um, so, But I was intrigued by the idea because if you think about it, we were, at that point in time, we were so far away yeah. from where the top teams were. We needed something and we weren't going to go the route of the team who was at the top at that point, uh, well, who was getting to the top at that point in Manchester City. So we needed something different. We needed to find a way to gain an advantage. So I was interested in the idea. Obviously, the first wave uh, became known as Chad for for reasons that I'm never really quite sure. Um, and yeah, it didn't go well. I think it's fair to say it. So, But his legacy is going to be tainted by that. And I think it's important to recognise the fact that when we did suddenly become successful, the methods weren't a million miles away. It was just the specific people we were picking was what improved. So whether that means that we were listening to different scouts, the data that we were getting was more advanced, or what? Because... It's, you can't just say, obviously, Michael Edwards coming in was the main difference and Ian Graham, because obviously Michael Edwards is at Spurs as well. Mm. So, it's difficult. I feel like he gets a bit of a bad rep because of what happened to the play, with the players he signed, as I said. But a lot of his methods, I think, were sound. But yeah, uh, I guess as a sporting director, you do live and die by the, the, the players you sign. Yeah. I think he's a he's a really interesting topic to be honest because for me he he definitely deserves credit for something, but <laughs> I'm not specifically exactly <laughs> sure what it is. Like for example, he he's the reason Edwards came to the club. Yeah. He he brought Edwards from Spurs. Edwards then brought Graham from Spurs to construct Liverpool's data science department and things like that. 
So we had a massive impact there. He signed Jordan Henderson for the wrong reasons, because he, he signed him because he was kind of posting big chances, created numbers for Sunderland. Mm. Um, largely because he was taking a fair few set pieces for them. And he arrives at Liverpool thinking he's going to be able to create chances when in reality he ends up thriving because he's a marathon man who's yeah. going to self, self-sacrifice for the team, basically. Um, and, like, you know, that kind of... Um, the job description that was presented to him by FSG at the start, you know, find a way to compete with less of a financial budget. He'd already kind of proved that he could do that to an extent at Spurs, mm. because they had that kind of job description at the time was break into the top four. At, at the time, it was very Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, United. That was kind of all it was at the time. Um, and his, his job description was find a way into that. And his way into it was, you know, he, he, he read Moneyball, was inspired by it, made friends with Billy Bean and all that stuff. And he went down the day's route to do it. And he, mm-hmm. sta- he, he contracted the services of uh, Decision Technology. Ian Graham was working for Decision Technology. And he, he consulted with them to sign certain players. Like, for example, I think there was a time when they were looking at Ryan Babble, mm-hmm. who was at Liverpool at the time. When I was a, at, at that age, I, I thought Ryan Babble was brilliant. I, thought, I, I was baffled as to why he never played, to be honest. Maybe I'd have a different, different take now. But rather than, I think it might have been Harry Redknapp signing Babel, Decision Technology, Ian Graham suggested, what about Raphael van der Vaart? Mm. And he went around and didn't go him in. And Spurs at that time, though, constructed a really good team. If you remember Bale, you know, Modric, I think, was, was signed under Camoli's watch, I think. Even Redknapp was appointed under Camoli's watch. I think Redknapp was underrated coach at the time. So... He deserves credit for something, but then at mm. the same time, he signed a lot of duds and did, did develop a bit of a reputation to be a bit of a talker. You know, he, he could be a bit of a Rogers uh, yeah. snake oil salesman. But by the know. same token, if you think about that period of time where it's him, and like you say, he was signing guys who Redknapp was using and turning into a good team, who's going to get more of the credit? It's always going to be the manager, particularly a guy like Harry Redknapp. So... If he's going into a PR battle with him, he's always going to lose. Yeah. So you think about the effect that has, and then when you see what happened with Liverpool, it's almost like a confirmation. Oh, well, clearly, it was only because Harry Redknapp was a great coach why he got that those players were successful. It has nothing to do with this guy picking or his ideas, but the reality is always it's a little bit more than that. And, yeah, I think what you see a lot of time, particularly with the recruitment teams and the management is that chemistry is massively important so you can have players and coaches and sporting directors who will do a really good job in one space but can't replicate it in another space because the dynamic of the people they're working with isn't the same which is why Michael Edwards is so keen to make sure we always work with Ian Graham because it's like yeah I know that if we've got at least two points of the square or the triangle whatever it is that are in conjunction with each other we can battle what everyone else is saying. And that's really, for me, the key to making us anything work. You've got to have a good system, but then you've got to have people who can implement it to its fullest. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, that's why it's difficult sometimes to, like, sometimes we do a Q&A and one of the questions usually 
at least one is can you recommend any sporting directors for Liverpool? And sometimes it's hard because yeah. you don't know overly what it is they're doing and who they're reliant on. For example, Everton went and appointed uh, Steve Walsh, was it, a couple yes. of years back on the back of Leicester winning the league. And when he got to Everton, mate, the, the players he bought, just awful. Just genuinely awful after previously bringing in the likes of Maras yeah. and Kante and players like that. Constructing that squad, or, or apparently constructing that squad. Maybe not. Well, this but is it, you see. And I mean, Steve Walsh was responsible. For, uh, he was the man who brought in Kante Amare. Uh, sorry, Kante Amares. Was he the guy who scouted them? Was he the guy who <laughs> went out to French second divisions and was watching them? Or did he have a really good scouting network at Leicester yeah. who brought this player to the table? And then he looked at him and went, yeah, let's go with this guy. Suddenly, he's the man responsible for it. And again, this is what you say. You don't know, we don't know who's doing what. And so it's not until you actually put these things together. Like, the classic example is uh, Monchi, mm. who was, you know, superb, severe, an absolute disaster at Roma. And it's kind of, people have been trying to work out which one is the real him. And it's like, they're both him. Yeah. <laughs> it's just uh, in different situations. He ended up differently because of the people he got to work with. And going, bringing it back to Liverpool, I think the whole York Schmadka thing over the summer, there was lots of, um, consternation, particularly about us, from us, in terms of giving Klopp too much power and is he going to be a yes man for him? But again, it kind of highlights the fact that there needs to be a relationship, there needs to be a, a general respect and the speed with which we needed to move over the course of summer kind of meant that you kind of needed to expedite the process. So <laughs> having someone that he knows kind of made sense. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting topic. Like, I mean... Camoli was the, the the kind of beginning really of the FSG era in terms of like me, moving Liverpool towards being this data driven club. Obviously, he didn't have any data science departments at the time to lean on. Um, that's why he kind of appointed Edwards and, and Graham and things like that. And even at the time, general even if he was a stats man himself, the stats available at the time were just not that great. No. I don't think Statsbomb even existed at the time beyond like just a website. And Opta was. On its way, but the you know the best, the best stats out there were just kind of like shots, chances created. There's very little context behind that. Expected goals was in its absolute infancy, if it was even about to be honest. Yeah. So, at the time, using numbers to gain an edge, the numbers were always going to be really ropey, basically. Yeah. And they're not anymore. That's why Liverpool now, and that's why every club now really, is adopting the numbers. So when it comes to recruitment and scouting, because now they're a lot more like watertight and stuff like that mm -hmm. and people get to grips with them a lot easier nowadays but back then it was difficult to do it properly you know and, and get an accurate read on a player yeah. and, and i mean even if you've got the the data it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be able to interpret it properly exactly, so yeah. I, one i always think about <clears> is assists like people when people say oh well his goals and assist numbers blah, blah, blah. it's like not all assists are created equal yeah. Like, so you can have an assist, the one off the top of my head, Alexander Izak at Everton last season, where he basically dribbles all the way down the touchline, beats three or four men and lays it on the plate for, I think, Jacob Murphy. That's one assist. Or you have Curtis Jones playing a five-yard ball to Mo Salah a couple of seasons ago at home against Man City. Salah then beats three or four men, puts it into the far corner. One assist. Yeah. And it's like... You can't say that the, the influence of the guy making this hit is equal in both those times. It isn't. Yeah. So you have to look deeper than just the pure numbers. And so 
if you're, for example, go back to the, the Camoli thing, we've got Stuart Downing, loads of crosses. John Henson, loads of crosses. Well, John Henson doesn't actually play out wide. He was playing out wide because of who else Sunderland had in their midfield. Oh, well, um, Stuart Downing takes a lot of corners. But then you've also brought in Charlie Adam. Yeah. So it's like... The, Absolutely spot on. <laughs> it's like they're not going to produce the same amount of numbers simply from both of them being there. Yeah. And again, it becomes how you interpret whatever data you've got. It's as important, if not more important, than getting the data in the first place. Yeah, I think he used... He was arguably one of the first in England, really, to use data to construct a squad. Mm. But it's it, constructing a squad is like constructing a recipe. And if you're just really honing in on, for example, chances created, and he's looking at the chances created by Adam and Downing and Henderson and thinking that they're all going to keep up them numbers in the same team together and not get in each other's way and not want to take the same set pieces, it's kind of like constructing a, a, a recipe and just throwing loads and loads and loads of chicken in the recipe because it's, <laughs> it's a nice ingredient. You need other, you know. What I mean? um, so yeah, he's a he's in a, he's a a polarizing character, I think. Um, mm. As I said, he's at he's at Toulouse now, and he's they're very data driven at the minute. They're kind of owned by Redbird, who've got a stake in FSG. So uh, that's why he's kind of in charge there. He's still obviously friends with the whole kind of. Which, which tells you that they obviously feel that he has some benefits, so they feel, feel like they got some benefit from him, from what he did for Liverpool. But I think clubs like Toulouse, it's easier for him to be able to operate in those worlds, simply because you can make more of a difference with those marginal gains. I think when you're at the top end, you can make marginal gains, but you've still got to throw a lot of money at it mm. for it to work. You've still got to have the depth of squad regardless. If you're playing a team, if you're in a mid-table French team, for example, and you can be, have a couple of smart signings, that can take you from 13th in the table, uh, maybe, or 14th in the table, just escaping relegation, to 9th in the table and winning the French Cup. And it's only a few different players here and there that can actually make you go from one to the other. Yeah, it's also worth noting as well, I think, arguably his best... But it, I mean, it was his best bit of business. He did bring Luis Suarez to, to Anfield, you know, to be fair to him. That, that happened about three months after he arrived. Yeah. Um, which is a serious deal. But in the same window, we signed Andy Carroll. <laughs> well, this is so, it, isn't it? And, and it's like, just, you know. And I mean, I think the Suarez deal was one that the, the quality there was as such that he wouldn't have taken anyone. It wasn't like, mm. oh, we, we've got this special plan and hear me out. I'm going for this guy called Luis Suarez. Whereas with Andy Carroll, it was a bit more like, okay, we have to see the game plan here. And even though, as fans will keep telling you, the only reason he costs so much is because we got so much from Chelsea for Torres. Yeah. Yes, that's true. But the fact of the matter is, is Newcastle still gained £35 million that they absolutely didn't deserve. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but this is part of the reason why we, we praise Edwards so much on this podcast, because... A lot of sporting directors are like that in terms of they've got a decent hit list, but they've got a decent fail list as well. Do you know mm. what I mean? It's kind of even. Whereas Edwards, when he was in charge, obviously wasn't perfect. Almost impossible to be in this in the, in the world of football and that. But he had a lot of hits, mate. <laughs> a serious and, amount of hits, and, and they were really good hits as well. The system kind of was created with minimising the misses in mind to the point that 
we were in a situation where rather than signing a guy who could turn out to be a miss, we just wouldn't sign anyone. Mm, yeah. And again, that's, that became a controversial strategy. But what it meant was is that you weren't carrying a lot of players who you couldn't get rid of and who weren't good enough. And if you think about some of the teams we've been fighting for in terms of you know, Arsenal, Spurs, Man United, Chelsea, they have had that problem in spades. Yeah. So you can't pretend like it's not a part of it. It's not an element, but it's just a way of doing it that we've, we've kind of benefited from mostly. Yeah, but one thing with Edward as well, I mean, he, I mean, he might never take another sporting director's job, but and, and if he doesn't, that would mean that the only play, the only coach he's ever signed players for is arguably one of the greatest coaches ever when it comes to maximising what a player's doing in, in Jurgen Klopp. So you have to obviously throw that in there, as in like Edwards has benefited massively from the fact that. He's given players to Jurgen Klopp, one of the mm. best coaches that's ever lived. Whereas, like, Kamoli was giving players to maybe Hodgson for a period and then Rodgers. So it's a bit, it's a bit different. And I mean, even Harry Redknapp. Let's not forget, yeah. Harry Redknapp wanted to sell Gareth Bale. Harry yeah. Redknapp almost sold Gareth Bale before he became Gareth Bale. So, mm. like you say, managers. It's again, it goes. It's almost like um, attackers with forwards. It's like. You need them to make you look good. Yeah, you can and, do your and, job. and the Van Dyke thing going back to the midfielders. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like in football, <laughs> mate. Everything is linked, isn't it? Isn't it weird? Yeah, but we as fans <laughs> are always looking to find the golden shot. The the, the one reason yeah. why this is like this, particularly because if we can then solve that, then that means that everything's okay. And it's mm. like you say, it's never that simple. No, it isn't. Uh, but we'll wrap up there anyway. I think. Trip down memory lane there. <laughs> nice to have every now and then. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us, Mo. Um, who have you got this weekend? Uh, not in the forest. I think I'm forest, yeah. Who have you got next weekend? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the forest, uh, before we leave, uh, one thing I want to touch on with the forest game. Uh, anyone who remembers or was at that game remembers the absolute bombardment that um, forest gave for set pieces, long throws, corners. And they man-marked us in the middle with, it, a, with a diamond, yes. with the box, so that was a problem for us. So, it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm anticipating Costas getting a rest against Toulouse, or at least not starting the game. So, I'm hoping that they've got him on the trampoline, practising his jumps, springs, <laughs> so he's ready to fight off all that aerial bombardment, as I'm sure we're going to get from Forest on Sunday. Yeah, be insistent one. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries. And uh, we'll be back next week, sickness permitting. So uh, yeah, we'll see you then. You've been listening to Analyzing Anfield from the Liverpool Echoes Blood Red Channel.